And then what did you do? So I tried to figure out who I was and all that. You know, um, I was a performing monkey. I was doing what everybody wanted me to do. And I was doing it well. And I'd done it well my whole life, you know. And I kept trying to pursue other opportunities or trying to get to the next level. I'm like, hey, can I write this? Can I do this? Can I do the next thing? And I kept getting turned down. I was waiting. I was constantly waiting for someone's approval and constantly waiting for someone to give me the next opportunity. It was like I was walking around shaking this magic eight ball. Okay. Waiting for someone to tell me, you are good enough. And so finally I smashed the magic eight ball and started creating for myself. Hmm. Like what do, I want to, what do I want to be creating? So I started writing, creating, putting together videos. Um, I knew I wasn't the right look to be on TV, um, but by doing my own creative work, I ended up getting picked up for a TV show because they oh. liked what I was doing. Um, yeah, just creating for the sake of creating. And that's where things roll. So, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Marvel's World podcast. A podcast where we speak to tantalizing and fabulous individuals. And people who help people like you and me make what we love a full-time job. If you like the podcast, please give us a view on iTunes and share it with your friends. If you don't, just say nothing and be quiet about it. Uh, today, we have an amazing comedian. She is a TED Talk speaker, uh, a voiceover artist, and a comedian on the Japanese comedy circuit. And she is a very sharp and prolific joke writer. Please welcome the stage, Sona Stevens. I'm just kidding. I speak English. I'm American. I've lived in Japan for 24 years. I'm sure the listeners are like, oh, we're going to be speaking Japanese today. No, no, no. Uh, hi. Thanks so much for having me today, Marvin. A pleasure having you. And like, yeah, just you, you, you say that whenever you're on, what was the message you like to give Sonus? Oh, so yeah, I want to start off with what I'm, my, what I'm grateful for today. And I'm so grateful. Um, I'm grateful to you, Marvin, for connecting with me and wanting to share on a deeper level. And my intention today is to bring light to a new idea. I'm not sure what that idea is going to be, but as long as we set an intention, it's easier to move towards it. That's very law of attraction and what's it called? <laughs> Visualization, affirmations. Is that, is that where you got it from? I think so. You know, you actually, I, I listened to one of your podcasts about the law of attraction. Oh. <laughs> uh, so yeah, actually I've listened to quite a few from now that I think about it. I was like, no, I listened to one. No, two. Wait, how many? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was very good. He's, he was very practical in what he said there. And it was the most practical advice I've heard on it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, it, it does go beyond the law of attraction. Um, there's, when you set your intention, when you create that, you, you're creating it on a cellular level. And I'm not just talking about the law of attraction because I, I, I'm kind of go back and forth on the law of attraction. Of course, what you focus on, you attract. What you focus on, we pay attention to, that's what happens. That's great, fine. But there are a lot of things in life which I don't think that we attract. So I've had people use it 
the converse way, which is kind of funny because, you know, I studied feng shui for 14 years and a lot of feng shui is about the law of attraction. Um, and at the same time, a lot of people say to me, oh, Sines, you know why this happened to you? It's because of the law of attraction. It's because you were focused. Like, so what? My baby died because of the law of attraction? <laughs> like, what is this? Did I do something horrible in like a past life that I just, oh, that's what I deserved? Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I think there are a lot of things that we, we focus on. Um, when it comes to law of attraction. That being said, um, I think it's really important to focus on attraction. And there was a quote by um, uh, Diane von Furstenberg. She's the, she's the woman who came up with the wrap dress idea. And her Tai Chi instructor said, if you focus on force, you will fail or break. If you focus on energy, you will stagnate. But if you focus on intention, you achieve your goal and your power. So if you focus on intention, you achieve your goal and your power. And that's not just law of attraction. That's just, you know, it's about making a deliberate choice. Hmm. Yeah. What do you mean by <laughs> deliberate choice? Well, you know, we can think about things consciously or we can think about them conveniently. Okay. Let's say, for example, yesterday I made a decision. I was off Facebook for a couple of years and then I came back on Facebook and I realized it wasn't serving me. I, I, and I know it's so convenient as a comedian to be on Facebook, to be updating, to be checking things. Um, same thing with YouTube, <laughs> that as well. Like I end up focusing my morning on comedic news or what's happening in the world. And I think, wow, the iPhone has given me so much convenience, but am I using convenience over consciousness? is this serving my higher purpose? Is this making me a better person in the day? And I know when I start off my day in a certain way, it will crumble and fall apart. And if I start in another way, it will start to be more productive and more creative. So we get those choices. Are we focusing on convenience or consciousness? How does, okay, but how, how does the, well, one thing I wanna talk about is like, so you're obviously from America. Mm -hmm. And like, how, how could you tell us a bit about your journey into Japan and like how the two cultures compare? How the two cultures compare, you know, um, well, I've lived in Japan for more than 24 years. And so a lot of people ask me, oh, Sines, what's life like in Japan? And, and, and Marvin, I guess they're, they're bored with hearing about America and, and I get it. That's why I left too. Um, <laughs> I, I think, um. But I, I'm glad my husband's taking that call. Um, I, um, wow, it, it's such a hard question to answer. It really is. I mean, how do you answer a question about, you know, about what what the difference is? You know, when I first came to Japan, I had all these these images in mind. Like I thought I was going to be a ninja because my brother and I used to play ninja when I was a child, and I thought, you know, I thought life would be so, you know traditional and mindful and, you know, it, and now when I think about what it's like to live in Japan, I think that's not what it's like. But no. when people ask, I don't know how to answer that. I really don't. I'm so at a loss for this, Marvin. I've had, um, I had a comedy booker in California ask me like, hey, will, will you talk more about Japan? And I keep thinking, well, you don't want to hear about Japan. You want to hear the top 10 lonely planet list of things to see and do, not the top 10 list of why I'm lonely on this planet. 
Like, you, you don't want to hear about Japan. You don't want to hear, you, you don't want to hear the thing. You just want to hear the things that everybody wants to know about Japan. But you don't want to hear about the fact that I didn't get a pay raise because my breasts are too big. And, and, and you don't want to know that I get groped on trains. And you uh -huh. still don't want to know that this is still better than living in Trump's America. <laughs> oh, bloody hell. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I think it's kind of, yeah. I don't even know where to begin when it comes to talking about Japan. However, on the other side, there are so many beautiful things about the country. Like uh, our door is unlocked 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Huh? Yeah, I'll leave the house for a full day and not lock the door. Why? Because it's safe in our neighborhood. Nobody's going to come into my house and steal anything. And besides, what are they going to steal, Marvin? They're going to come in and be like, nothing of value here except the refrigerator. Like, okay, if you need a refrigerator that badly and you can schlep it down the street on your back, those winding streets with no names, then help yourself. You probably need it more than we do. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, yeah, there's so many wonderful things like that. Like it's safe, it's clean. Um, what about the Yakuza? Yakuza, oh my gosh, I actually did have a run-in with Yakuza. Oh, tell us, <laughs> please tell us. Tell us, okay, so it wasn't like this massive run-in, um, but it was, it, it was my little Yakuza moment. So I lived in this apartment building and the owner was so sweet. He was one of the only people who would rent to a foreign woman with a cat. I mean, like it, it's, it's hard renting an apartment with a cat, but if that cat's bringing along a foreign woman, it's even worse. But he, he rented to me and then he died, not because of me or the cat, just like he died of cancer. Um, but in, in this apartment, um, his relatives, not his children, but his relatives inherited the property because he didn't have any kids. He didn't have a wife. He had no family of his own. And so they wanted to kick us all out. And they thought, oh, well, it'll be easy to get the foreigner out. We'll just tell her to leave. But Japanese law says you're supposed to let them finish out their contract. Everybody who's a renter or tenant finish out their contract and you have to pay their moving cost because the moving in Japan is like first month, last month, uh, gift money to the landlord. You know, like it turns out to be five months of rent to move into, a, into an apartment. And so they thought, well, we don't have to pay her. We'll have to pay the Japanese people, but not her. So they just sent some Yakuza guys to my door to knock on my door. Conk, 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 you know. You get money. Uh, yeah, they're like, you know, um, we want you to leave this apartment. That's it. They just called the Yakuza. Instead of getting me to leave or asking me to leave properly or paying me to leave the apartment building like they did everyone else, they were just like, hi, uh, you need to get out of this apartment building. We need to know what your visa status is. Hey, go show us your passport. Like all sorts of stuff. They just knock on my door every other day. I would have knocks on the door from the Yakuza. I, I was terrified because I was on tour at the time. And so every weekend I'd be on this nationwide tour. So I'd be in a different prefecture. And I was like, oh my God, what if I come home and there's like my cat hanging from the ceiling? Like these little anxiety things like, oh, my cat, you know. Um, but nothing bad ever happened. Uh, I did get a, a real estate advocate and... Um, and they did, I ended up living rent-free for nine more months because they kept refusing to receive my rent <laughs> and they had to pay for me to move, which was great. Um, so if you ever do have Yakuza knock at your door, do not hand them your passport and just stand your ground. Uh, okay. 
However, the Yakuza did end up burning down the housing advocate office. So uh, <laughs> maybe that wasn't so good for the advocacy office. But um, yeah. But I, hear, I hear Japan has quite an interesting relationship with the Yakuza. Is that true? It, it, in what way? Like, what, what do you mean interesting? I mean, yeah, everything's interesting. You're such a curious person, you know? I, I, I heard that's a that, sign of intelligence. I, I, I heard that, 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 that they have a relationship, like it's quite in depth, dead in depth what's it called in in de inside the japanese sort of culture it's all it's been like it's not like in the uk or in america you you have these little gangs and they do different things but the yakuza are actually proper part of japanese culture and like inside the nation they're involved in a lot of things on all levels i have a friend his name is jake adelstein you've got to meet him he's incredible and he wrote a book uh, about the yakuza oh that book is being turned into a movie oh it's really cool yeah it's really really cool so yeah um and he was the first person to take me on a yakuza tour of kabukicho which is it's the red light district of shinjuku in tokyo and it's, you know, he take me, take me on this little tour of the back streets. He's like, well, see this, uh, see this little sign here. And I'm like, oh yeah, the sign for, you know, the telephone club. I'm like, what's a telephone club? Do you just like call somebody off and make friends? Like wrong number, <laughs> you know, what is it? And, uh, and he's, no, no, like you, you get on a telephone and you get a date. I'm like, wow. It's like telephone prostitution. He's like, yes. You know, every little thing he would walk, every corner we went, he would tell me a different story about how the Yakuza were involved or how the Yakuza were involved with this major off-brand um, discount retailer. And it, it was just, you have to meet him, Marvin. His name is Jake Adelstein. Check him out. Follow him on Twitter. Incredible story. He, he used to be an investigator. He used to be an investigator, investigative detective, and he worked for a newspaper. And uh, absolutely fascinating guy. Anyways, check him out. Check his movie out, Jake Adelstein. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's simply part of Japanese culture. Uh, the thing that a lot of people don't know about is how the Yakuza are really good people. Yeah. In general. I mean, other than like burning down my real estate advocate's office. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, that wasn't their fault. That were, they were hired. I mean, what are you going to do? But on the other side, um, during the earthquake in 2011, yeah, you know, it's kind of ridiculous around here. The government's like, what do we do? What do we do? And um, they're like, we have bananas. We'll send these bananas up to Fukushima and put them in the shelter. So people who are staying in the shelters will have something to eat because they were running out of food, running out of supplies. But okay. the thing about Japan is everything has to be done equally. Okay. Like if there, are, if there are four bananas and there are five people there, they okay. they cannot give anyone a, a banana. All the bananas will go bad before they give them out. Oh, okay. So it really, that scenario did happen. Not four out of five. It was actually quite a larger number. But um, the Yakuza, now they got this mega great system. So here they were. They were like, there's an earthquake. Ooh. What are we going to do? And they're like, wow, well, we've got all these wholesale supply shipment chains. We, we know where, you know, they have this whole entire network of trucking and systems and so immediately they jumped into action and sent stuff up to Tohoku. Not for any money. It's simply volunteer. That's, that's basically their CSR. It's their, it's their service to society is by helping out when there's trouble. And I just thought that was really fascinating. You think like, yeah, these big bad guys are going to be like, yo, you're going to pay us for those four or five bananas. No, they're like, 
How can we leap into action now? So I thought that was really interesting. Um, as I think you saw one of my one of my shows, I talk about growing up homeless, growing up in a in a Volkswagen Dash or growing up in a car. And um, and when we were thirteen, I was taken in um, by my one of my grandmothers. And by the end of high school, there was still no stability. All that's like, let's just put it this way. I was, I went to school for the first time regularly when I was 13 years old. First time to go to school regularly. I was 13 okay. and I made straight A's. Like I was a really good student. For somebody who'd never been in a school system, I was like, dang, like this is my thing. I'm, I'm jamming with the textbooks. And then um, the teachers and the guidance counselor said, you know, you're not going to go to university because you're too poor. And um, I never had any encouragement to go. My mom wanted me to get a part-time job at, at McDonald's so that she and I could move out of my grandmother's house and we could get an apartment somewhere and I could go to community college part-time and, and uh, work at McDonald's part-time. And I thought, there's no way I'm doing this. I have got to get out of the small town. I'm going to university. And so when it came for time to start looking at colleges, I signed my own application forms and I formed her forged her signatures. Oh. I wonder if they could take away my college degree from this, you know, like they listen to this interview and go like, ooh, Sines forged her mother's signature. Oh, and, and all the scholarships forged her signature on those too. What happened? Um, so I, I, <laughs> I ended up getting kicked out um, my senior year from my grandmother's house because you can tell I'm a really bad kid. And <laughs> I was not, I was a straight A student. I was like the, like everything you could possibly want in a, in a, in a, um, I had tried so hard. And, um, but I was allowed to come back in and I ended up spending most of my time away from home. And then when it came time for university, I'd forged the signatures for the college applications. I forged the signatures for all the scholarships. And then I had been working since I was 13 years old to put food on the table, 13. And every time I would work, I would get like $11. I was paid way under minimum wage. I would get paid $11. I would take $1 and put it for tithes in the church. And $1 I would put into a sock drawer so that one day I could get away. I could buy myself a car. And I piled all that money together and I was able to buy myself a 1980 Dodge Omni. Oh. Got myself a little K car parked it at a friend's house. And the night before I went to university, I pulled it into the, into the uh, driveway, packed a couple of boxes of things that I had. And it was like, whose car is that? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's mine. Where are you going? University, bye. And I didn't see them again for like four years. Okay. But so, <laughs> they had no idea I was going to university. No idea. I just left. Oh, and then what happened then? I graduated, actually, I graduated in three years, three years in a summer semester. Oh. And, yeah. And then what, 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 what was your journey into getting to Japan from there? Oh, so I wanted to, um, the job market was really bad. And I got this job offer and I was like, I cannot see myself working in a paper company for the rest of my life. 
I was literally like the office. That's literally what I was going to be doing, filing, like creating forms on paper. And I thought, I don't think paper is the future. <laughs> and so uh, I decided to go back and get my MBA. And um, I took my GMATs and all my scores were great. I had great grades. And Harvard's like, you'd be a shoe in if you spoke Chinese, Russian, or Japanese. I'm like, I've always wanted to be a ninja. That's great. I'll be back in a year when I'm fluent in Japanese. And I moved to Japan for 11 months to study Japanese. 24 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> Whoa. I just, yeah. You just fell in love with the country. Yeah. Well, I loved who I was becoming. Um, yeah. That moment where you just decide, I'm going to take the leap. I actually had that leap moment too. Ah. Yeah. I had this leap moment. I was... I was working in a regular, regular job and I had this great boyfriend. He was absolutely fantastic. And this job was great, but then I had this radio show going at the same time. And I was like, do I take the leap and just do talent work full time? But he's moving to New Zealand. Do I go oh. with him? Oh. Do I stay with a steady gig that's, that pays pretty well? And, you know, it's, it's not that hard and I was like what do, what do I do is it fulfilling me and he took me that day on a date to bungee jumping and so I stood on the edge of this platform for like an hour and a half I stood on the edge I'm like you guys like can you jump and I'm like I'm making a lot of decisions here <laughs> I'm literally on the precipice of what I'm going to do with my life and at that point, my boyfriend had already jumped and, you know, he's just the nicest guy and he was so, you know, great and he was handsome and he was, he was just fantastic. And he was so supportive down at the bottom and he was looking up and he's like, you can do it. And I'm like, you don't know that you're on the line. <laughs> but, um, but that was, that was my decision. I, so I stood there, I stood there, I stood there. And finally I'm like, I'm going to quit it all and I'm going to move in the talent industry full time. And I jumped and he came running up and he hugged me and little did he know that moment I had decided to break up with him. Oh, yeah. Oh, he was fantastic. Seriously. One of the nicest, smartest, best looking people. Just really such a beautiful heart and beautiful soul, but our paths were going in different directions. And I had to choose for myself. You had to decide what was right for you. I had to do what was right for me. So I quit my job, quit my relationship. And uh, I walked into the studio two days later. And they said, thank you so much for this fantastic year on this radio show. See you never. And I was like, what? <laughs> The show ended. So here I thought I'd replaced my job that I just quit the day before and walked in and was like ready to go full-time in talent work because that income replaced my other income. And it was like, I was getting paid the same for doing a radio show a couple times a week that I was doing a full-time job. And I was like, what? Say what? Yeah, I, I didn't get another gig for like six months. Whoa. But yeah. Yeah, it was it was funny. It was really funny. 
I'm, I'm really thankful that I saved up. Um, I'm really grateful that before I made the leap, I had saved up about nine months worth of emergency income because they always say, you know, save up six months of income just in case of emergency. And I did that. And thanks to that, when the audition came for Hello Kitty, I was ready. And what is Hello Kitty? Oh, so yeah, I'm the English voice for Hello Kitty, or I was for many, many years. Hello Kitty. I'll look you up. know, the little cat with no mouth? Little Sanyo doll? Oh! Oh, here. I've seen it, yes. <laughs> you were the voice for that. You should have mentioned that at the start. That is amazing. <laughs> oh, sorry. I didn't really think. I don't know. <laughs> What do you want to know about me, Marvin? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That's awesome, though. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. That is definitely a lot of intention setting as well. Like, I was like, well, I've committed to this. It's going to be my full-time thing. Oh, and, and so you're Hello Kitty. And then, like, how did it revert to being, like, a TED Talk speaker and, like, oh. other things? Yeah. Yeah, so I was doing talent work. And I was – so where do you want to go from here? Um. So you, you went into that place and they said, what, hello, never. And then, so how did you get the voiceover? Oh, yeah. So my agent called, my agent who said, if you're working in another gig, you can't do talent work. We need you available all the time. And I was like, for six months, I was like, hello, hello, I'm, I'm free now. <laughs> They're like, we got nothing. Um, and then this audition came in for Hello Kitty and they brought in about 200 women who spoke English to do Hello Kitty. And I thought, wow, I wonder what Hello Kitty sounds like. So I went to the video store. This is back when we had videos. VHS cassettes were still a thing. Um, are you familiar with those? those? Yep. Right, okay. So um, we have these VHS cassettes and I went and rented everything that had Hello Kitty and I just played it all day all night for two weeks straight. My neighbors must have thought I was insane because I'm walking around like doing all these different voices around the house. Like, <laughs> just all these random sounds coming out of my mouth. And um, I walked into the audition and I could do every single character on their roster. <laughs> um, but I was the only person who could do Hello Kitty. Now, Hello Kitty was amazing because it's because of that gig, I met a woman named Michelle. And she walked through the door and I thought, she seems interesting. And then she spilled hot chocolate all over the inside of her bag. And I'm like, I definitely got to get to know her. And so she's like, oh, my hot chocolate. And so I went to the bathroom with her and helped her clean it out. And we got to talking. We became friends. And she's like, you would be amazing at this job that I do. I'm like, well, what's your job? And I'm like, she's like, what do you do? I'm like, you know, I'm not really doing much of anything, but I have this dream. I want to like sing and dance on stage and I want to tell stories and I want to, I want to, I want to bring families together. And yeah. And she's like, that's exactly what I do. So through her, I got an audition and that's how I ended up on tour. And that's how I ended up moving into the talent industry and even further into it. And, um, that's, that was my full-time career. Oh, I was still at the university doing research. So I was still there once a week, but yeah. Um, so that was fun. And from there, I ended up feeling like there's so much more I could be doing. You know, there's a point at which you max out. Like there's, when you're, when you're doing talent work and voice work and when you're reading other people's scripts all the time, there's a point at which I felt I felt like I was blank. 
And I was just being what everybody else wanted me to be. Okay. And then what did you do? So I tried to figure out who I was and all that. You know, um, I was a performing monkey. I was doing what everybody wanted me to do. And I was doing it well. And I'd done it well my whole life, you know. And I kept trying to pursue other opportunities or trying to get to the next level. I'm like, hey, can I write this? Can I do this? Can I do the next thing? And I kept getting turned down. I was waiting. I was constantly waiting for someone's approval and constantly waiting for someone to give me the next opportunity. It was like I was walking around shaking this magic eight ball. Okay. Waiting for someone to tell me, you are good enough. And so finally I smashed the magic eight ball and started creating for myself. Hmm. Like what do, I want to, what do I want to be creating? So I started writing, creating, putting together videos. Um, I knew I wasn't the right look to be on TV, um, but by doing my own creative work, I ended up getting picked up for a TV show because they oh. liked what I was doing. Um, yeah, just creating for the sake of creating. And that's where things roll. I, I was even doing voices at Fox and they were like, you know, hey, Sinas, I hate to tell you this, um, but the, the show is going to finish in uh, six months. And they were expecting me to just like, start bawling because that's what all all you know actors do like oh the show's gonna finish i was like oh, okay can i write the rest of it like what well i've already been you know basically co-writing but i'm not getting any credits um i would like to take over the rest of the writing like, oh. okay so i got my first writing credits at fox and this is fox japan uh, doing comedic <laughs> comedic writing for them uh and yeah, I just started stepping into myself and like, here's who I am. Here's what I'm, I'm capable of creating, not just having to be what other people want me to be and what they write me into, rather creating for myself. And that changed the game for everything. And I've, there was always this element as well that felt like I love performing. There's also this element of me that went to school to become a marketing genius and wanting to do business. And with that, I felt like that was always unsatisfied because I wasn't getting the next level in, in the talent world. You know, I wasn't getting to the point where they were letting me direct or create or write. And so here I started taking those things forward. Um, and then at the university, I was still, I was still there once a week. I was publishing in academic journals based on my crazy methodologies I was using in class and they were working. So I wrote a couple of books on presentation skills and ended up writing Japan's first multimedia textbook used in the university system. And then the second one and yeah. And then this job I had at NHK TV, Ted came over and I was already doing presentation skills and I was already teaching these kinds of things. And Ted came and they were like, oh, you know, uh, Ted, NHK, kind of like Ted, BBC, they had that thing going on. I was like, I would love to be part of that. Whoa. That would be brilliant. I would really love to be part of that. So I went to my director and I said, hey, um, is there any way I can get a seat for this Ted NHK event? And like, oh, son, son, I'm sorry, it's all sold out. I'm like, oh. 
okay, well, then I'll just give up on that. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. You know, I have this rule of if somebody tells you no once, you go back seven more times. So I went to another one. I said, is there a way that I can get? No. Is there any way? No. Any? No. Can I? No. 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 Finally, I went to the head of the department. I was like, is there any way I can? Oh, so Nessan, we can only get you one seat. I'm like, that's great. I fit in one seat. And that's back when I did fit in one seat. And, uh, and so at that point, I ended up walking into the TED NHK event. Um, I knew the guy. I met the guy who had started the TEDx movement in the world. He went to TED and I think he did the same thing I did. He went to TED and said, wouldn't it be great if we had independently organized events? We could call them TEDx. And they're like, no, 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 no. And TEDx Tokyo became the first one in Japan. And then from there, it expanded globally. He's like, does anybody want to sit in the front row? I'm like, yes. Whoa. And I sat in the front row next to this guy. I was like, I know him. And he looked at me, he's like, Sinesh, are you the Sinesh from NHK? And I'm like, yeah, you're Gar from Presentation Zen. He's like, we're both fan, fan drooling all over each other. And I was like, oh my God, it's this guy. He's amazing. Oh my God, he's amazing. Um, and ended up at lunch with him and the guy who started it, Patrick Newell, who started the TEDx movement and Dr. Maki Sugimoto. And they're like, Sinesh, if you were to give a TED talk, what would you talk about? And I said, well, we're at lunch. I'm unwrapping my lunch there. And I said, well, at the university, I've been doing research on, you know, when you feel shy, what is the opposite? They're like, what's in your lunchbox? Like, oh, it's a, it's a beef stew. I, I make three meals a day in a rice cooker because, you know, I've had some health issues. I, I make every meal in a rice cooker. And they're like, okay. So anyways, about my research. So what I've been researching at the university is, uh, you know, when you feel, you do what in a rice cooker? I'm like, yeah, I cook three meals a day, Thai green, uh, Thai green curry, Spanish patata, ample crumble, you name it, I make it. Three meals a day in a rice cooker. Anyway, so about my, no, 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 no. We want you to give a TED talk on your rice cooker. I'm like, what? I'm a researcher. I don't want to talk about my rice cooker. No, except when opportunity comes. Marvin, what do you say? You got to say yes, please, and Namaste. Namaste. You can say namaste. That's what you can say. I said thank you, but or you can say arigato, but that's your choice. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah, yes, please, and namaste. And uh, so that's how I ended up speaking at TED. And from there, um, I ended up giving this talk that I actually wanted to give. Oh, and how did you? Exactly. So things, that's sort of law of attraction in a way, isn't it? I did. Funny thing is I had made a vision board and I had um, Tina Fey on it from, you know, when she was writing for Fox from 30 Rock. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and there I ended up writing. And within six months, I also had my TED Talk that was on there too. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, one yeah. of the misconceptions of visualization vision boards is people seem to think that if you just do it it's going to happen but no there's a lot more to it than that you've got to take action you've got to you know you've got to do things towards it you can't just expect it to come to you and i feel that that often comes across in like visualization and law of attraction and affirmations yeah it did well i still always envisioned you know even though i was asked to speak at ted about my rice cooker which is not what i wanted to talk about but i did go back to you know, what is the important message for me here? And even when writing that talk, I was like, okay, if I take it and strip it all back down to one thing, what is that one thing? 
And it was, um, whenever I would talk to somebody about rice cookers, they'd be like, oh, Sonesan, you can't, you can't put anything but rice in a rice cooker because it, it, it's meant for rice because everything here is, has a purpose, right? And I, and I stripped it back to when we remove labels, you can be, do, and act in any way that you choose. So that was the core thesis of my entire talk. Even though I was talking about a rice cooker, it was really about removing labels. And I still envisioned what I would have given as my real TED talk. You know, if I didn't have to accept the opportunity as a rice cooker, what would I do instead? And going back to what I was researching. And funny thing, um, Chris Anderson, the head of TED, he was there that day. Uh, same with Kelly. And they were on the stage and they were like, okay, we have 300 of Asia's movers and shakers. So if you were to have 30 seconds on a TED stage, what's your idea worth spreading? We're going to give you 30 seconds. So everyone come on down. And of course you got everybody across Asia. You got heads of Google, robotics companies, like these are geniuses all in one room. And there's me talking about a freaking rice cooker. Um, but you know, you got all these geniuses and uh, Marvin, can you and just imagine how many people jumped out of their seats? A thousand? Zero. Nobody got up. I said, what? And they couldn't believe it either. So they're, okay, we're going to take a 15-minute break. When you come back, we'll give you 30 seconds to share your idea worth spreading or not worth spreading. And you can take the stage. So everybody left. And for 15 minutes, they were, ideas, 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 ideas. And then they came back in. And he said, I'll let you take the stage. Come on down. Shing. Complete silence. So I raised my hand. And Chris turns to Kelly and he said, can we have a TED speaker come up again? And she's like, no one else is coming. Just get her on stage. We need somebody. And that was the time where I actually got to give the talk I actually wanted to give. Ah, and then you won them over and then. Yep. And then I started coaching TEDx speakers. Um, I was the first TED speaker coach in the world. And then I uh, started training 10 TEDx speakers around here and then around the world. I ended up giving that TED talk plus four more TEDx talks myself. And then after that, I've trained over 130 TED and TEDx speakers. Oh, and who are notable Illumini that you, you've taught? Um, you know what? I think everyone is. This is funny. Like, you know, I think a lot of people want to say like, oh my gosh, what about this person, that person? I think everyone has an idea worth spreading. And it's a matter of how you're conveying it. So let's say, for example, um, Okay, I'm, I've also, I'm also an award-winning speechwriter, um, but one of my speakers, not one, actually three of them now, have come second place next to, um, next to the president of Finland, the Mike Pompeo secretary of state, and um, what was the other one? Secretary of Commerce of the United States. Like they win these awards next to them and you think, of course, they're not going to win first prize because they're not presidents of countries, but they they get runner up, which is not like, you know, tea, egg and spoon race or anything. It's, it's, it's a major deal. Those are the ideas that make a difference. Nobody's going to remember 
these famous people in their speeches. I mean, they might, they may not, whatever. But you know what they're going to remember? They're going to remember Brian O'Connor. They're going to remember he was a military veteran who changes the lives of other veterans by giving them a sense of purpose. They're going to remember that Marine being on that stage and changing lives. They're going to remember Kelly, who speaks on the bystander effect, who's saying, stand up for what you believe in. And there's a, you don't have to risk your life to do so. There's a large scale between those. You're never going to forget Monica, who talks about, you know, the flip side of loneliness. Okay. So I don't think anybody has to be somebody world famous and renowned. You just have to be you changing your life. And I think, Marvin, that's what you and I get to do as comedians as well. Yeah. And how, how did that happen into like TED Talks, into stand-up comedy in Japan? Like what, what happened there? <laughs> it's a long circle, isn't it? Um, so I did, I, okay, I went into, I got into comedy because I gave a TED Talk that was not effective. Well, it wasn't, wait, it wasn't that it was not effective. Um, I gave a TED Talk on miscarriage. What do you say? And, I, you know, after going through multiple baby losses, I, I really wanted to change the perspective of what people say to parents who've lost a child, to stop shouting out the platitudes of like, well, at least you can get pregnant or it's God's will or, you know, the law of attraction. I got that one a heap of times. Like, you must have done something because, you know, or if you were meant to be a mother, God would have made you a mother. Like there's, you know, karma or something. And I thought like, what terrible things have I done in my life? All the shame and blame and the spirals of that. So I created a TEDx talk on this and it was exactly what I wanted. It was telling, instead of telling mothers just to speak up, because it's really important that mothers get a chance to speak up and fathers too, uh, about baby loss, it's also about giving people the tools to handle that pain, to be present without shame and blame. So once we give tools to people, they can be more present. And that was the mission of that talk. And I thought that would change the world. And it did change people, people who watched it, but it wasn't as much as I wanted. And I was still processing and working through the emotions of grief and loss and people who hadn't seen the talk, who continued to say really negative things, like, again, you know, law of attraction, what did you do to, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily a piece of the puzzle. I, I think back to one of my friends when I did improv um, back in Orlando, Florida, I was with Sat Comedy Theater, and I remember we went out to lunch, and we had to stop by his apartment for, like, to get something, and, uh, I was only there for five minutes and I just noticed this picture of his, of his wife and baby. I said, you never talk about them. And he said, because they died in a car accident a year ago. And he was a police officer, a drunk driver had hit them. And I would never think to say to that person, what did you do to attract your family dying? Whoa. And you not being able to do anything about it, right? There's nothing. Sometimes just really crappy things happen to good people with no sense. And we make choices. Of course, you'll come out stronger. We all know that on some level. It'll either make you stronger or it'll break you. Either way, it's not something that needs to be said. No. 
all we need to do is simply be present, but most people don't have those tools. So it was after going through this, giving that TED talk and giving, still receiving the crappy statements, all these platitudes, which make no sense. And I thought, I got to do comedy. <laughs> like, that's it. So my whole entire point of going to start doing stand-up comedy as opposed to improv was to, was to start doing, um, start talking about social issues. Really, it was to talk about baby loss in a way that if you're laughing, you're learning. Um, and not as, a, not as a form of therapy, because, you know, I have a therapist. My therapist was amazing, you know. Um, that's not it. But it's a matter of, I think, of comedians. We are gestures. We are gestures of the world. And we get to reflect light from the darkness and change society's perception of what we're doing. And I thought, that's going to be a really unique way to do this. So I got into comedy to talk about loss. Mm. Talk about the ridiculousness of it to talk about things that happen in society. Like, is it appropriate that women get groped on trains and are told to be quiet? You know, these little things that we can express in ways that are absolutely hilarious and spark conversations on the way home. Okay. And Oh, my. And, and do you, and you still do the Ted talks alongside stand-up comedy and all these things you're doing now. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. So my main, my full-time job is I train Ted speakers. Whoa. I still go into the studio a couple times a month because I really enjoy performing. Like there's that little part of me that's like pat my back. Cause when you're, you know, I am, when I train Ted speakers, my job is to make sure that they are amazing. I don't have to be on stage. In fact, even doing comedy, I don't have to be on stage. My whole thing is, if I don't say it, who will? If you don't say it, who will? Okay. It's, my speakers don't speak because they want to speak. They speak because they have to. I don't speak because I want to speak. I, I really am not the first person to jump up on stage. I do it because I have to. Whoa. Mm. And I believe, you know, as comedians, when we hear ourselves or when we express ourselves, we allow others to feel heard and we allow them to be seen. And it's through our commonality that we, we open up a space, a space for transformation by processing and healing just one idea, one premise, one joke at a time. Okay. And yeah, stand-up comedy effectively to you achieves the same effect as what TED Talks do, except it makes people laugh about it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> how many, how many uh, TED speakers or like PhDs who want to be comedians <laughs> are we get to be comedians who get to pretend we're PhDs, but nobody thinks that. It's, yeah, I, I do find it kind of ironic when I hear people who are comedians and they're like, well, well, thank you. Welcome to my TED talk. And I'm like, <laughs> I've given five of them. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like, are you giving something that's like a mission worth saying? But yes, I think we, 
I'm not saying that we need to be on stage lecturing people, but there's a way to be able to, uh, to take our premise, our core thesis, and turn it in such a way that it enlightens the world. And you, you see the masters doing this. You know, can you think of comedians who make a statement with what they're, what they're joking about? Um, yeah, there are a few, but not many. I would say if you go back and look at all of them, most of them do. Um, if, if you're looking at the big, big names in America and like some of the big names in the UK, yes. But like generally, when, when comedy's deep and like sends a message, yes. But a lot of the times the comedy I see is just sort of woke um, stuff trying to make people like you sort of comedy. Yeah. Especially on yeah. TV. Yeah. And there's a place for that for sure. There's definitely a place for, you know, light and, and not all of my material is like, oh my God, dead babies, you know, or, oh wow, let's talk about homelessness. Not all of it's about that. However, being able to bring those elements in, you can balance the light with the dark, you know, you can bring those together. And it's not a choice that every comedian would make. And I think a lot of a lot of people want to go to comedy clubs to not think about those things. And some of them do want to have that moment. So having one, one or two people come in and, and just sort of be able to laugh about these things that are just absolutely ridiculous. That's, that's, um, that's a unique position. Yeah. Have you seen, um, if you, even if you're thinking about um, a comedian that's lesser known, Check out Winston Hodges. He, he has one on grief as well. I think he's really interesting. Uh, we ended up on uh, Scott Porteous's workshop together. And I, my, I just found out my father had died a couple months ago. Well, actually, I found out he died a couple months ago, but I found out he died three years ago. <laughs> um, just no one ever told me. And uh, we ended up on the same show together. And we, me and him, and there's one more as well. And we all ended up talking about our, our dead dads and it was funny and it was poignant and it was, all of us had different relationships with our fathers and it was probably one of the most hilarious shows. I think it's, yeah. Proof is funny sometimes. Yeah. Life is funny. Why, why do you think we make so many observations about it? Yeah. We, we don't make sense as human beings sometimes. <laughs> And we, we like some of the amazing, amazing and terrible things we do are funny. Right? Oh, it's so true. Yeah. When, yeah. Okay, we're going to stand quiet for a second. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you had a question. I feel like I'm just, I feel like I keep talking. <laughs> One, so... So you told us a bit about your journey and like, tell us a bit about like, how long have you been doing stand up for? And like, what's, what's that been like? Um, actually, that's a really interesting question. I, I run a stand up comedy mastermind where we write together and facilitate. And every time, every time someone comes in and like, I've only been doing comedy for this long, or I've been doing comedy for this long. I'm like, you know, maybe that's not an important question to ask because it, it creates a hierarchy. What's and, your journey in stand-up then? Oh, but I want to give this answer because it's really fun. Okay. I, I think it's how you show up in comedy. I think it's how you show up. 
Because I've seen people who, I've seen people come into the mastermind and they've been doing comedy for maybe six months who are way better than people who've been doing it for 10 years. It's really amazing to look at that. Everyone has a different growth dynamic or knack for it. Um, we, we have one woman, she's um, Ola, Auntie Ola. She's a comedian. She's a, a Russian lawyer. And she's got this really astute mind for creating jokes in English. And I think there's also that's something to do with it as well, like this ability to, to flip the switch, you know, to be able to create or catch on to things. Um, yeah, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Oh, so my journey. I think I told you a little bit about my journey um, going into wanting to do stuff around baby loss. Um, that's how I got into stand-up. The, you know, I, I don't think of myself necessarily as a really funny person. I think I'm witty, but not necessarily funny. I think that's something that you can develop, you create, and you just keep honing and working that. Uh, yeah, I mean, even when I starting off doing improv back in university, you know, I look at people and think, wow, some people are just really naturally funny. And then some of us work at it. Did you watch the special with Nanette, uh, called Nanette? No, I've not seen it. She's, um, she's a comedian from Tasmania and, um, it, it, her name is not Nanette. It's, um, uh, come back to me very quickly. Uh, Hannah Gadsby. That's her name. Thank you. Hannah Gadsby. So, um, what made her famous was her comedy special Nanette. Cause she talked about like funny stuff about life. And then at the end it became a Ted talk <laughs> really became one. It just got really heavy. And then Hannah Gadsby got really famous after that. And she's on all these, she gave a TED talk, like a real one as well. And talking about how humor didn't really come naturally to her, but that she saw the world in a different way. She saw it differently than other people did. And that she's not comfortable speaking. Yeah. Okay. And I think in, in that case, I think a lot of comedians are not necessarily comfortable speaking, but it gives us a platform in which to hone and articulate what we do want to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Marvin? My thoughts. Uh, what on on what you said there on comedians aren't necessarily confident speakers. Um, it depends on the comedian. I think some comedians. I mean, they always say that comedians are mentally unhinged and a bit um, iffy upstairs. Um, <laughs> to an extent, some comedians are, and so to the extent, I think there's quite a few comedians that aren't. Like comedians are either in the worrying, the category where they worry a lot and have all sorts of issues, or there's the others that just get on with life. And your, my answer to that is, it's funny that a lot of comedians say it, it's about to deliver a message or whatever, but there's all sorts of really funny comedians that they're just funny. They're just like Gatsis Candice, and but he's got talent. Mm. He's very silly and he does a lot of silly jokes. Like he does it. You should look at him. He's one of the funniest comedians out there. He does this joke on, um, I like the warm weather. It makes me warmer. But he says, oh, it's my warm-up joke. But that's, that's, it, it, I didn't give it justice, but if you see him do it, it's amazing. And then there's also Kat from Thailand, who's a very funny comedian. And then there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of good comics that do that, but I feel that there's also a lot of comics that just, do wacky things and just do their straight stand up set and they want to make people laugh mm. I mean a lot of people in the UK and in America they really look up to those sort of comics but there are other types of comedy too so 
Yeah. I, and I think we change as comedians too, as we go on that journey, you know, what we want to do. Not every, I don't think everybody should be doing social issues comedy. Like that's not for everyone, but um, it's not meant for everyone to be a one-liner either. No. Yeah. And yeah, I think most of my career I spent playing roles that other people gave me and I had to be in and out with my lines. And I think that made it why I do TED Talks, why I train TED speakers, you know, that's about messaging. And so that's what's, that conviction is really important for me. That doesn't mean it's important in all the comedy that I watch, Okay. but that's, you know, only one area of it. One other thing I want to look at is like, so you've told us a bit about your journey into the Japanese stand-up comedy scene. And like, if someone wants to grow and progress, what are your advice for someone? So if my name is Jim, I'm a builder from the UK and I've moved over to Japan. I'm like, well, I'm going to give some stand-up comedy a go in Japan. How do I like do my stuff and get better and develop? <laughs> um, so one of the things, obviously, you know, go to a mic it's really easy to get on a, on a Tokyo mic. There's, there's always a mic happening. So when you come over, you know, let me know, I'll point you in a direction of a mic, go do a mic. I also think one of the things that uh, I did immediately was I, I hired a coach and director, like moving from entertainment into uh, from improv and entertainment into stand-up comedy. Um, when I booked my first show, <laughs> I did my first open mic, I got booked. And then uh, I immediately went on a search for a coach and director because I don't, it, we have choices in life and you can spend 10 years and get so far, or you can spend 10 years and get so far. But if you can maximize that from day one, I would say do it, take some classes, you know, the world is opened up online. Of course, I was doing all this before there was, <laughs> there was a world online, but there were a few coaches online at the time. Um, so, you know, I think taking classes is really important. You learn the basics. And I'm not saying comedy should be formulaic, but there are some baselines that you can start working with. And then I knew what my goals were. I knew that I couldn't walk on stage immediately and start talking about grief and, you know, social issues. I knew I couldn't do that. I knew I was going to have to start learning with light stuff. And yeah. so, you know, and, and finding a coach who was willing to take me to the next level. Like, I know I'm here. This is what I, I realized, you know, and the person I ended up choosing, um, I, I had sessions with about three people to figure out like who was the right vibe for me. And we worked on the same bit just to make sure that it was all equal across. And then um, the one that I moved forward with understood. And he said to me as well, he's like, okay, we're going to start with the light stuff. You probably end up working with that initially for a while. And then when it's time, we'll know it's time to start working on the other stuff. But he also makes sure that I don't do only dark stuff, that I have a lot of light intertwined with it. And um, one of the beautiful things about being on lockdown with this pandemic has been the time and space to work on that. So while I'm working with my therapist, I work on my comedy, I work with him, um, and I work my comedy, and I work with Mastermind. So I would say for a beginner, um, go to an open mic if you think it's fun. 
you think that's something I, if you think it's fun or you think I failed so bad that I definitely need to get better at this, start looking to classes. Don't, you don't have to go it alone from the day one. You can start, start smart, get better faster. Yeah. That's what I would do. That's what I did. Okay. And yeah. what, what have been the groundbreaking moments in each part of your life of like being a voiceover? You mentioned it a bit before, but what would you say you've learned from each of your fields? Um, pursue things you're not great at. I, there was not a part of me that thought I would be amazing on stage. Never did. I was super shy, super awkward. Uh, I pursued it because I wanted to become better at it because I thought it would make me a better person. Okay. And with, okay, and how does the structure normally work in the Japanese sort of English speaking comedy scene? How does the structure work? Yeah. Like grammatically? <laughs> there no, are no, no pronouns. Like they don't use she, he, I, so it's great if you're non-binary. Um, <laughs> the progression, um, I would say come over, start, you know, if you're starting out, start on open mics and then um, hopefully you'll get booked beyond that. A lot of people think they're going to get booked immediately, but, you know, do the work, do the writing, keep reworking that material, cut things that aren't working, ask people for support and advice, you know, hopefully and that's, again, I still think taking classes and getting coaching are a great way to do that, but keep showing up. Um, a lot of people get frustrated because they've been in the scene for, you know, a few months or uh, almost a year and they're not getting anywhere because it's really a process of refinement and showing up, showing up, showing up, showing up, just keep doing the work and showing up. Yeah. I think, um, who's that? who is that comedian who who they almost kicked him out of the club because he just wasn't getting anywhere chris rock i think was it chris rock chris rock oh i feel like somebody told me this story i think my coach told me the story recently um yeah he he kept he was failing hard and then um and then suddenly one day it just all turned around, but he almost got cut. He almost didn't want him to come back and perform anymore. And now look at him. Oh. I hope that's the right person. <laughs> so yeah, I'm a big proponent of just keep working hard, you know, work hard, but work smart, get the support when you need it. I think that's one of the things I love about the comedy writing mastermind is because we get brilliant minds coming to the writing table to support each other. And you're not, you don't have to be alone in the process. No yeah and what what would you say uh life advice you give to your younger self what, from hmm. everything that you've witnessed in comedy and all of these things that have happened don't listen to advice from other people <laughs> um but get advice you know get support uh you know one thing that i came upon uh this week for myself was nothing really matters. You just keep creating and hit send, create, hit send, create, hit send, create, hit send, because it's never going to be perfect. 
it's definitely not going to be perfect the first time around. I'm learning a lot. Um, my husband, he's a physiotherapist, a New Zealand trained Japanese physiotherapist. He's probably one of the most Zen people I know. Uh, I have goals. Like my goal is to become a Buddhist monk. And just for the sake that I, oh. my goal is to become a Buddhist monk means that I would make a terrible Buddhist monk. <laughs> but he would be an incredible Buddhist monk and he has no ambition for that. So I show up for Zazen meditation every weekend and he's never been. <laughs> but uh, one of the things I learned from him, we just recently launched his online course on chronic back pain and he's amazing. He works with people from Iceland to uh, New York and he works with rugby players in New Zealand and he's just working all around the world with clients online. He can basically fix your chronic back pain through the internet. Uh, well, he doesn't fix you. He teaches you how to fix it for yourself. He gives you the tools. Big proponent of self-management. And, um, and his clients get fixed within three sessions. Like they can handle that themselves. And I always look at some of the things in the process of creating, like shooting videos or writing and sending things out. And I get stuck in this, it has to be perfect. It has to be perfect. It's not ready to go. It's not ready to go. Um, and for him, I watch him and he's like, da -da -da -da, send, da -da -da -da, upload, da -da -da -da. it's not perfect, but he gets it out there. And I think I want that. I want that. I want to oh. be able to just create and hit send, create and upload. Because in the beginning, nothing really matters. Nobody cares. Probably nobody's even watching or listening. No. And, and what, what is a, so what, what is a quote that you'd like to live by? Someone else's quote? No, just any quote, any quote, either yours or somebody else's. What is a quote that has inspired you and you think will inspire others? Design in the name of love. It, it, this just happens to be on my desk right now. So, <laughs> um, yeah, one of my uh, one of my speakers in Pakistan. Her name is Sana um, Nasir, and she created this poster. It's design in the name of love. And maybe if we're all creating in the name of love, it'll it'll become more of a human connection. And who is your hero in life? I don't believe in heroes. Okay, but who do you admire and look up to in life? Yourself, is that the answer? You know, I really respect my husband right now. Like, just, I really respect create and hit send. I just really respect that at the moment. I think we evolve and change as human beings. And if we're not evolving, we're stagnant. If we're stagnant, we're dead. And if we just look up to one person as one idol, this one being as omnipotent, they're bound to let us down at some point, or we let, feel like we let them down. Mm. Um, I, I feel like all we have is this moment right now. You know, that stranger in the airport has such a really cool message to share with us. 
that person on the train, the person at the checkout counter, whoever we're with in this moment, uh, we get an opportunity to choose to learn from that person or not. And that's an active choice as well. So you, okay. So you just say that everyone can be their own hero. That's your message. I don't think we need a hero. What, what do we need heroes for? We can look up to people and respect them, but I don't, I don't know if we need anybody to, a hero feels like somebody's going to save us. Do we need saving? No. Just need no. ourselves. Eh? Uh, well, one thing I want to ask of you now is like, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Uh, yeah. Okay, great. So one, check out my TEDx talks. You can check out my speakers. They're pretty amazing. Uh, you can see, oh, I love them. They work so flipping hard. You can check them out on www.yourspeakingjourney.com. That's yourspeakingjourney.com. And for shows coming up, depending on when this is coming out, I will be doing the Democrats and Biden campaign for Georgia. That's coming up on <laughs> who knows what day of the week that is for anybody oh. in the world. That is um, Japan, December 14th at 11 a.m. Tokyo time, or that's December 13th on a Sunday for um, I, that's 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, that's LA. And uh, I think that'll be a really fun show. I also have a show with the New York Underground Comedy Festival, and I'll be doing a workshop for them as well about how to perform and do comedy in a second English as a second language speaking country. So if you travel or you want to travel a lot and you want to do comedy abroad, or if you want to do, if you're from another country and you want to do comedy in English, this is a really great opportunity to figure out how to internationalize and globalize your comedy. And the workshop is called, is this funny? No, wait, is this joke funny? Um, I don't remember what the title of the workshop is. <laughs> is this joke funny and other essential travel hacks? So come check that out. That's the New York Underground Comedy Festival. That is on Tokyo, Wednesday, December 9th at 9 a.m. That would be New York, uh, Tuesday, December 8th at 7 p.m. So those sure. are two things that are coming up soon. And come, if you want to come have a really positive and safe space to create and play with others with your broken jokes or premises and ideas that you're like, I wonder if this is going to go anywhere. Let's brainstorm together. Come join us at the Stand Up Comedy Writing Mastermind on Facebook. Right. And you can follow me on Instagram. On Sona Stevens. That's correct. Yeah. Right, guys. I hope you've enjoyed Sonus. If you like the podcast, again, please leave a review and share it with your friends. Make it five star, please. <laughs> and um, yeah, just I'll see you guys at the next episode. Uh, Sonus, do you have any last things you want to say? I love you. I think you're amazing. Keep creating and hit send. Okay, guys. Hit send, everyone. Send me the reviews. Uh, send Sonus the love and subscribe to her workshops. <laughs> and I'll see you guys at the next episode. And Sonus... Hope you have a great day. Take care. Stay safe and well. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Uh, 
au revoir, à bientôt, uh, bonne journée. All right, cool. Did you give up? Arigato gozaimasu. Otsukasama deshita. Okay, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take care, man. I'll see you soon. Thank you.